Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. We are very excited to have Nathan Furr, who is a Associate Professor at INSEAD and obviously more importantly is on the EFG Future Leaders panel. So um, uh, so very kind of briefly, the sort of things that we are looking forward to hearing from Nathan is very much about um, uh, innovation. Um, uh, Nathan had done some work on the Forbes list of the top innovators in the world and really starting to delve into, you know, what, what are the characteristics of of these innovators, how do they operate? Uh, what can you learn uh, from them in terms of uh, uh, how they scale up their businesses, how they uh, how they create innovation? And then we'll talk a little bit about the kind of pandemic, uh, and then we'll talk about some some very important topics coming up. Uh, we think over the next few years around uh, innovation and are these companies now too big and are stifling innovation and uh, you know the impacts they will have. And then finally, we will talk a little bit about uh, Nathan himself and his exploits in Paris. So uh, with that, let's dial in Nathan. So Nathan and I met, uh, I guess, about three or four years ago now. And uh, Nathan, as many of you know, is on on the EFG Future Leaders panel. Uh, So Nathan, uh, welcome to this podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's a fun podcast. I've enjoyed listening. Well, thank you for listening. And uh, obviously, um, I always remind people, you know, remember to give us feedback uh, on the podcast. Uh, so, uh, Nathan, let's go straight to it. Um, you know, uh, be really good to um, to to you know, get an idea of your background, where you grew up, where you went to college um, and uh, some of your early learning experiences. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's interesting. I was trying to think about what might be interesting to people because you know we all have these really unique stories, and and for many of us, many of us, our path is quite winding. I mean, I grew up on the west coast of the United States. You can probably tell from my accent, but I live in Paris today. I'm a professor at Inciada, and I focused on focus really on strategy and innovation. Really, how to establish companies, innovate. How do we manage uncertainty? How do we create new opportunities? And you know, if I think about my journey there, it's it, it's really kind of a complex story. On the one hand, you could say, well, this is a guy who comes from privilege, right? I was born in the U.S. to two Caucasian parents who are university educated. Um, and on the other hand, you could say, well, this guy also faced a lot of obstacles. I mean, I went to the worst high school in Oregon. I mean, we had the lowest graduation rate, the lowest rate of sending uh, students on to university, you know, my family broke apart. I had to pay my own way through school. I, you know, went hungry plenty of times and really had to forge my own path. And and that forging that path was not 
was not at all clear from the beginning. I mean, I was in humanities at one point, public relations at one point, and eventually found my way into the into management consulting. I actually worked for Monitor Group uh, in Boston, and while I was there, got really interested in kind of deeply understanding why things work. So I was actually on a book project with uh, a woman named Sasha Nicole Jonai that was arguing that CEOs become more isolated as they kind of rise in the ranks and that they need to establish these networks of people who are different from them so they can hear these other voices that help them see what's coming and, and what, what they're missing. And just digging into that got me so curious about really understanding the foundations of management, of accounting, of strategy, of innovation. And I got really fortunate because I found my way to uh, Stanford and in particular, a unique group at Stanford called the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And, And there we focused on innovation innovators in terms of entrepreneurs who had created Silicon Valley or created the Silicon Valleys of the world. And then um, also on established companies to innovate. And so it was just such a rich environment. While I was there, the lean startup movement took off. I was involved with that. The design school was founded to teach design thinking. We were starting talking about agile ways of working in computer science. It was just like an era of ferment and change where it felt like old paradigms that were built around the kind of plan and execute were falling apart in the face of a world that where the barriers to entry were coming down, technology was changing the world fast, and there were more opportunities than ever. And so that was really probably a super formative part of who I am because I really see the world as filled with immense opportunities and also a great deal of uncertainty. And all of that comes out of change. All of it comes out of essentially as technology lowers the barriers to entry, as more people participate in the innovation process, as education allows people to recombine ideas in new ways. We just, there's so much change and that change creates uncertainty, which is hard for people and companies to deal with but it also creates an immense amount of possibility. And so really most of my work is motivated by that question at the core, although on the surface it might look a little different. So how did you, um, I recall one of the early sort of discussions we had about some of your students at Stanford who went on to be very successful. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, a little about, a little bit about that. And then how on earth you found yourself at uh, INSEAD? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, One of the things I loved about Stanford was getting involved with unique, intelligent, smart, motivated students. In fact, I taught a course there called the Mayfield Fellows Program. It was actually sponsored by the the Mayfield Venture Capital Fund, uh, one of the very famous venture capital firms there in Silicon Valley. And we took 12 top undergraduates from anywhere in the university, and we just really tried to immerse them in what it means to be an entrepreneur and the network of entrepreneurs. So we taught them about innovation in the first quarter. They went out and did a venture funded startup in the summer. And then they came back and talked about their experiences. You know, I got to have students, so I got to have students who did really fun things. So for example, I had 
the students who created Instagram in my class and Asana and a number of other companies. And many people today are, are, are talking about uh, the, the film, the, the social dilemma. So many people are talking about the social dilemma today. And those, many of my students, so many people are talking about the social dilemma today. And one of my past students in Mayfield Fellows uh, created that film. And then many of the other Mayfield Fellows students who are big players in the tech companies today participated in that film. So it's really fun to see them mature and grow and change the world and think about the world they're creating, you know, and say, Oh, Instagram, was it all good? Or are there things that are not so good about it? And, um, and then your personal journey to, to Paris. Um, oh yeah. How did, how did an American end up in Paris? Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of a fun story because I, I, I think it's an important story because it's just illustrative of how of my big passion, which is how do we create more opportunities for ourselves and for others. I remember I just graduated with my PhD at Stanford. I'd taken a position at a university in the U.S. while I was finishing my degree, and I was at a conference in Seattle on a boat. It was night, and darkness was covering Puget Sound. We were kind of passing through. Uh, I could see the lights on the shore, and, and one of my friends, uh, who was also a professor but in France at one of the Grand Ecoles, just kind of mentioned to me, yeah, you know, maybe you could come visit and teach a class for a quarter. And I, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great? Paris is so fabulous. But right away, the alarm bells went off in my head because as a new academic, a new PhD, this is exactly the wrong kind of thing to do. You should be focused on your research, don't have any distractions. But, you know, I've been doing all this research on innovators. I remember this interview we did with Jeff Bezos when he talked about making the decision to start Amazon.com. I mean, at the time he was working at D.E. Shaw and, you know, when they were like the big quantitative hedge fund, if he left the company, he would leave his year-end bonus on the table and, you know, he's got this big decision to make. You know, I've got this idea to do something cool with the Internet. I remember the Internet back then wasn't as great as it was now. It was like the Wild West. It was weird. It was kind of, you know, you didn't know what exactly what happened on there. And they approached his boss, D. Shaw, to say, you know, hey, I, I got this great idea. And his boss is like, you know, it sounds like a good idea, but it'd be a better idea for somebody who didn't already have a really good job. And he said, you know, think about it. And, and Bezos, he, he talked about how did I, Jeff talked about how do, I, how do I make a decision like that, a really tough decision. And what he said is he came down to what he called a regret minimization framework. And that was, he said, I wanted to project myself to age 80 and I wanted to minimize the number of regrets I had. And, and he said, I, I knew that if I tried to participate in this thing called the internet, that it, I would I would not regret trying. Even if I failed, I wouldn't regret trying. But the one thing I would regret is if I didn't try. And so when I was standing there on that deck and that friend made an offer to go to Paris for a quarter, even though it was a big distraction and you know, times really, you know, money was really tight for me, everything was tight for me. I just said yes. I was like, yeah, we got, you know, I'll regret it if I don't try. And and when we came, I taught at one of the Grande Coles. And I loved it. I fell in love with Paris. I fell in love with Europe. I fell in love with INSEAD, which is unique because it truly takes a global perspective. So not just Europe, not just the U.S., Asia, Middle East, the entire world. And, and I think when you take a global perspective, you see things in a richer, deeper way. 
than you would if you just have a U.S. perspective, you just have you know, a U.K. perspective or whatever it may be. And so I fell in love with that mission. I fell in love with INSEAD because it's, it's one of, you know, probably only Harvard and INSEAD try to balance research and practice. You know, how do we know things deeply and rigorously, but also what's relevant, what's practical. So I, I love that. And, and, and again, I fell in love with Paris as well. Saying Paris is a, is a unique place. I was just, you know, it's, it's a tough time for Paris right now. We've been through a second confinement. And an acquaintance of mine, he just posted about Paris, and I think he said it really well. He said, in Paris, everything is possible, even without money, especially without money. And he just, you know, it's like, it's just a place, and he goes on to say, you know, it's a place where people come to do, to try, to fail, to learn, and it's just this kind of dynamic cauldron uh, that is also a very beautiful place. So I, I'd say it's, you know, I, so I, yeah, that's how I ended up in Paris, you know, by saying yes, by making choices I wouldn't regret, and because I wanted to be in a, at kind of the intersection of the world, not just maybe in the United States as great as it is as a country. So Nathan, um, uh, so you're in Paris. Um, how on earth did you get to work on this kind of Forbes list of uh, of innovators? Um, you know, for me personally, it's like probably my dream job would be just to sort of travel around and just meet all these innovators and, you know, listen to their stories and uh, and learn a ton of, you know, ton of uh, how, you know, how they got to to where they where, where they did. You know, um, how, how do you get onto that? Um, you know, and obviously the personalities and, and your observations uh, that, that, that you had uh, from that experience. Yeah, so um, my, my journey to study innovators and how innovation happens started really even before my PhD program. I, I, I connected with a gentleman uh, by the name of Jeff Dyer, who is a professor at Wharton and at BYU in the U.S., and we wanted to understand where, if we look at people who came up with really innovative strategies, like Ingmar Kamprad, who started IKEA, or you know Pierre Obadiar, who started eBay. Like, where did they come from? Where did that big idea come from? And so we started to research innovators to try to understand, like, is an innovator born or are they made? And what we found is that most of the research suggests that innovators are actually made, not born, despite. The depiction that you see in the media where it seems like, wow, I mean, Elon Musk, who, who could be like Elon Musk, right? But it turns out that only about a third of our creative capacity is genetic. And so the rest of it is behaviors, environment, thing like, things like that. So we went out to investigate and we started to reach out to these individuals. We did case studies on them to try to understand where did these really breakthrough ideas come from. And what was really fun about it was that although you look at something in you know today, say IKEA, like, oh my gosh, look at an amazing revolution to the way we create furniture. We don't appreciate it today, but before IKEA, almost all furniture was very expensive. It came in one piece. So you bought a desk with four legs on it. It cost a lot of money. It was heavy. And what IKEA did is totally revolutionized the way we think about design, the way we think about producing furniture, shipping furniture, assembling furniture, and really made 
design available to the general population has really elevated the standard of living for many, many, many people. It was revolutionary, but it started really small and very simple and was a series of steps. And so what's been fun for me is to go out and interview some of these most innovative leaders, most innovative companies, and to and to learn from them. And oh, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I'd say the number one thing I've observed is that almost everybody I've talked to is different than you would have expected. So I remember when we interviewed Elon Musk, you know, Elon Musk, you get this kind of feeling from his portrayal in the media that he's this kind of uh, maverick who doesn't give a care about anything. who's just kind of out there, you know, I almost picture Elon Musk as the guy who walks into a casino and, you know, puts $10 million on you know, red, you know, on a red number or something like that. And uh, it's not like that at all. He was, he's actually, when you interview him, he's just an incredibly rational, analytical kind of scientific guy who just can't almost escape his own, his own, the rigor of his own thinking, you know, and, uh, and, you know, Jeff Bezos, we interviewed him several times, actually twice. We interviewed the team that supports him. So uh, Jeff Wilkes, who's CEO of Amazon Retail, um, Andrew Jassy, who's CEO of Amazon Web Services, has just fascinating to get into the stories of how those businesses came about and how many more businesses uh, that they have kind of in their portfolio that, that they, they could they could explore. So you know, I, I, when we were at um, Amazon just recently interviewing Jeff Bezos, as I mentioned, we, we talked to Andrew Jassy, who told us about starting Amazon Web Services. And really, at the time, Andrew Jassy was Jeff Bezos' technical assistant. So a pretty nice position, kind of following Jeff Bezos around, kind of getting to spend time with him. They had an offsite at Bezos' house, and they were asking this question, like, what are we good at at Amazon? What are our core capabilities? And yeah, there's a lot of discussion, of course, online retail and doing reviews and logistics and all that. But somebody started to talk about, you know, if we push a level deeper, we're really good at hosting this complex website and data service online, which is really hard. Like nobody has built the backbone, the operating system of the internet yet. So if it's hard for us, I wonder if it's hard for other people and other companies, and, and, and they have a process for testing an idea and a hypothesis like this that we wrote about later. But, you know, Andrew Jassy kind of said, oh, I, I want to be a part of that team, you know, and so gives up this really plumb position right next to Bezos to go explore this other opportunity. And, and using this process uh, of kind of testing a hypothesis quickly with customers and then iteratively experimenting and building, they developed this really incredible new business, Amazon Web Services, uh, which we forget is really phenomenal thing. But I remember Google, for a long time, people criticized Google and said, well, they did search, but they haven't been able to do anything else. Can a big company really do anything else than that one thing they started doing? And, and Amazon has proven skeptics wrong time and time again, because Amazon Web Services, that's B2B technical services. That's radically different than B2C e-commerce sites selling books. And um, so, you know, we got to hear about that from, from Andrew Jassy and, and hear about, by the way, that very process they use, which they call the, the uh, they call it a memo. Um, you know, he said, look, on my computer, I've got, I've got hundreds of these. I've got hundreds of Amazon employees who have come up with ideas who we can test 
an experiment and see if there's a new business here or not. So it's that kind of deep insight that you get when you get to really sit down and talk to these folks and that I try to bring into, into my work. So um, I guess that led on to, um, uh, you know, your, your book. So uh, uh, Innovators Method, Leading Transformation, and obviously Innovation Capital. Um, in terms of um, the learnings from kind of innovate and, and that you portray in Innovators Method, what sort of, um, you know, structural um, sort of themes that really come from, from, uh, from interviewing those, uh, those innovators and, and what you outline in your book? The first book that came out of this work was actually called The Innovator's DNA. Right, I and I wasn't actually listed as an author on that because it was right when I had gone to Stanford to earn my PhD. And there's a bit of a stigma to uh, be writing a book as a PhD student that can <laughs> sink your chances of getting a job. So, yeah. so I'm kind of like the shadow author on that was Clay Christensen and, right. and Jeff and, and, and Hal. And, and that book was really about how do you get ideas? And the core idea was there was a set of behaviors that you can adopt and practice to help you get new ideas. But that left open a big question, which is, I've got an idea, now what? What do I do with it? And so the innovator's method, what that grew out of is, I mentioned I was at Stanford during this kind of beautiful era of ferment when, for example, the lean startup movement emerged. And it was all about, it was a, a reaction against the business planning approach and saying, you know, rather than writing a big plan and executing that plan, what if you could be more like a scientist and run, identify a hypothesis and run a low-cost experiment to test that hypothesis and then iterate as you go? And at the same time, design thinking was kind of overturning that very structured, stage-gated, product development, engineering mindset and, and saying, no, 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 we start first with uh, human-centered design, having empathy for who that person is, designing around them and using prototypes to test and learn. And, and over in computer science, they were booting out old waterfall development processes, which were basically, you know, write the specs, create a Gantt chart and execute it because it was just failing every time in the real world. Instead, they were introducing these agile methodologies, which were, you know, take this complex piece of software, break it down into little tasks, and then run these sprints on these tasks where you then produce something usable that you test and you learn. And all of this, you know, that and open innovation, business model innovation, all of it to me seemed like different ways of looking at the same problem, which is, how do we manage the uncertainty of innovating? And so, I, so the innovator's method was like saying, okay, if we brought all these tools together, what would that, that tell us about how do we take an idea and test it? And number two, startup entrepreneurs were really in, in using these tools to succeed. But what about big companies? Can big companies adopt these to overcome that fundamental inertia that they suffer from that keeps them from innovating? And, and the answer was yes. And we went out and studied big companies that were successful using these tools to kind of reinvigorate their growth. And um, so, so it was a very fun project. We got to you know interview some great companies, uh, Many of them I wish I would have invested in because um, <laughs> they've grown, you know, phenomenally. But um, at the heart of it is 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 actually a fairly simple set of principles that we that we just keep falling into the same traps. 
And one of the, you know, I'm obviously not going to go over everything with you here. It's, it's a rich uh, body of work, but just, you know, one takeaway. I remember Vinod Khosla, he's a legendary investor in Silicon Valley, investing in Sun Microsystems and Juniper Networks and just, you know, a lot of big firms. He just, we had him on stage at Stanford and he was like, you know, any big problem is a big opportunity. No problem, no opportunity. Nobody will pay to solve a problem. And it's like so obvious, but the way that gets translated in the world of innovation is we have ideas all the time about stuff that would be cool. Oh, that would be great. That would be a great opportunity. The trap we fall into just as human beings is that our brains lock onto what we think the solution would be, and then we go execute on that solution without first deeply understanding what problem are we trying to solve? What really is the customer need? What's the job to be done for that customer? In all its dimensions, not just what it does, but how does it make the customer feel? How does it make the customer look? And, and the super innovators we study were really good at getting deep on that problem, understanding that problem, whatever the right, you know, in different ways, they use different approaches from Steve Jobs to other innovators, but the but it was always built around that core customer need. And that was the key to successful innovation. Because if you solve the real customer need, customers will come, they will buy it. And, and maybe just one example to illustrate this, of students applying the method as we taught it. So not like, you know, we looked back in history, we reinterpreted history through our lens, but no, we taught them, they used it and it worked. I had some students who were wanting to find an opportunity. They, they were looking around hospitals. They saw this pulse oximetry, which is the little thing they put on your finger, the little glowing line in your finger when you show up at the hospital, measures your oxygen and your pulse. And uh, there's wires. And they thought, oh my gosh, let's make it wireless. And they talked to nurses, and nurses were like, yeah, we love it. And they were all excited, and I kind of slowed them down, and I said, well, have you talked to all the customers? And when they went back and talked to hospital administrators, they were like, no way. You know, we don't have the money for that. It doesn't you know, measurably increase patient outcomes. And they came back to me kind of depressed. I said, well, why don't you take what we've learned and pivot, change? And, and what they settled on is what if we used pulse oximetry, but we created an infant health tracker that would warn parents if something's going wrong in the night. Now, they, went on, you know, they, they did an incredible job of identifying hypotheses and testing them. And in a few weeks, and with almost no money, they validated there was a real opportunity there. And they actually got into one of the big startup accelerators, Techstars. And they spent a couple months there maturing the idea. When they rolled out and went to raise venture capital to take this idea big, they found out there were two teams ahead of them. There was a team that was venture capital funded by former IDEO and Google employees. So uh, in my students' words, better designers than we are. And there was another venture capital funded team from MIT. And again, in my students' words, bet smarter than we are. And uh, so they were a little discouraged, but they kept going. And what, happened, what they found is that those two teams fell into the same trap, the trap I've been talking about, assuming you know what the solution should be. And that is, it was during that Fitbit craze when everybody was excited about personal uh, data. And so they thought, oh, well, we got to do that with babies too. Parents want to see all the babies' personal data. But what my students understood from actually going to understanding the job to be done is that 
when you're a parent, all that data, that little micro variations around O2 levels, that stresses you out. What parents really wanted was just to know everything's okay. And you know those other teams? They failed. My students became number one in their product category and are doing 100 million in revenue. And again, it's applying those tools to effectively turn your ideas into reality. So I guess the common thread in all of this is that kind of deep customer uh, immersion and really understanding what that need is and then being able to, to uh, as I think as you described it very well, is actually find the, find the solution to that problem. Um, how do, you know, uh, in terms of, say, take, say, larger companies, and uh, one of the things I remember from, from the talk you've done with us is around kind of blue and, and red thinking um, and, you know, comparing the two, uh, you know, very eloquently. I think uh, you describe uh, the blue world as, as one that fails fast and there's no stigma attached to fail fast because it's, you know, you don't waste a huge amount of money, huge amount of resources on something that ultimately would fail, uh, you know, further down the line. And then you've got the red where there's kind of lots of big planning, lots of... Um, you know, meetings, PowerPoint presentations, but ultimately they spend so much money, so much time on it and, uh, and never get anywhere. Um, um, uh, and that certainly resonated uh, with, with us uh, here at uh, EFG and certainly with the uh, investment management team who, who run the future leaders, you know, portfolios. Um, maybe you can sort of, you know, delve into that a little bit, maybe some examples of, of uh, I think the blue sky thing is, very eloquently put with Amazon, as you described it, like lots and lots of experiments. And, you know, if they don't work, um, that's fine. There's no kind of stigma attached to the fact they didn't work. You just move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point, Moses. And, um, you know, one of the things that was most curious to me when I went out and spoke to these innovators is how negatively they spoke about kind of classical management education, traditional management, you know, Elon Musk saying things like, you know, as much as possible, avoid hiring MBAs. And Scott Cook, who was the founder of the financial software firm Intuit saying, you know, when MBAs come to us, we have to fundamentally retrain them. Nothing they learn will help them succeed at innovation. And I found this really shocking and I, and I wanted to know why. And so I just kind of dug around. And one of the things I noticed is that management, what we teach about when we talk about business management and leadership was really, is really a fairly recent invention. It was created during the industrial revolution in response to a problem. And the problem was this, before the industrial revolution, every business was a small business. We didn't really need much coordination or optimization or any of those things. But technology changed that landscape into a world of giant businesses with production lines and assembly lines and transportation networks. And suddenly, you needed a whole new class of people to make this thing work, to coordinate it and optimize it and organize it and to capture value. And so business schools and management as a discipline was created in response to this question, how do we capture value? What was ignored, because it wasn't the fundamental problem on the table, was, well, how do we create that value in the first place? And so, in my view, there are actually two really important toolkits that everybody needs, established companies need, uh, and that is the tools to both create and capture value. And 
big companies tend to over time get really good at the tools to to capture value. Sometimes I call these red tools, uh, red management tools, just to kind of give them a color, get, make it more memorable. But what we see in more entrepreneurial firms or firms like Amazon is that they're good at balancing it with more entrepreneurial management tools. So the blue management tools. And whereas the red tools coming from classic, classical management are all about planning and executing and optimizing and making sure you don't make a mistake, which is great, right? In the right environment. Because if you know that you just need to make cars, you just need to make them faster and cheaper and a little bit better, those are the right tools, those red tools for that environment because it's low uncertainty. But in an environment of high uncertainty, those tools break down because you plan and then you discover the world's totally different than you thought. You execute, you spend all this money and you discover, oh, that's not what anybody wanted. And it's really slow and ineffective. So you need these blue tools, which are all about how do I learn in a world of uncertainty? How, failing fast is part of it because you're not really failing. All you're doing is you're running trials and you're learning the best way to do it for the least amount of money as quickly as possible. You're getting out there and you're doing it rather than sitting in the office and planning. You're talking to customers. You're engaged in rapid cycles. And so my belief and it's been proven out by the big companies that are truly successful is you need to be ambidextrous. You need to be able to do both. You need to be able to do red and you need to be able to do blue. Another way of putting it is to say that in the past, big companies could get away executing for years and they didn't really need these more entrepreneurial blue management tools. What's changed? Technology has fundamentally lowered the barriers to entry so that more people can more quickly and for less money create new things to challenge you as a big company than ever before. So like I remember going to Google and seeing them in the early days and them showing me a server rack. And their big innovation was that, oh, we pack the servers more tightly because the real cost of search and storage is space in a server front and they had found a way to do a little cheaper and a little better but to do that they had got had to go out and raise millions of dollars of venture capital to buy computers to buy servers to pack them in a space whereas if you wanted to create google today you don't need any of that venture capital money you could just start it on amazon web services and scale it up as you go the barriers entry in hardware software everything are lower and so more people are creating companies more companies are creating internal companies and you know scott cook who i mentioned he, he he put it this way he said listen you cannot run the ship the way you used to you'll get run over by a swarm of startups now, of course some of you are more uh, kind of are in industry with a few more barriers to entry but still i have students coming to me from national industry like railways or utilities and telling me Nathan, our world is changing fast. And so it's really critical for the future survival of a large organization to relearn these blue management, these entrepreneurial management tools. And I say relearn because they were good at it at the start. In most cases, there was some entrepreneurial founder who knew this intuitively and they were good at it and they lost it as they scaled and they focused on execution. But in, the, in this area, you have to balance both. And, and it's possible. I mean, I've studied companies who have maintained their ability to do both. So Amazon is one of the largest companies in the world, 22 years old, still incredibly able to be both blue and red. But I've also studied companies that lost their innovation capabilities, that were stagnating and declining. 
that found a way to reintroduce those blue management tools and become, become sources of growth, uh, engines of growth again. Uh, so, it, but, but the key is having the right tools. I, I don't believe that this story that big companies can't innovate. Well, what, I mean, that's silly. They have, they have everything that a startup wishes that they have, resources, customers, you know, but, but you need to use the right tools to be able to innovate. Um, and, and to avoid the traps, there are traps that come with innovation. So it's quite interesting, um, I guess, uh, during the pandemic, what's uh, very apparent to, to anybody actually uh, as an observation is, you know, a company like Zoom that actually been around for quite a while, right? Uh, suddenly, you know, due to the pandemic has suddenly been in the spotlight and yes, they've had issues with security and so on and so forth, which, uh, you know, no doubt they're dealing with. But it's just fascinating to me. So this company in relative, you know, nobody really knew it, uh, obscurity, no one really knew it, suddenly becomes this huge behemoth. Disruptions always reveal new customer preferences that were always there, but just hidden from sight. Uh, then, uh, then suddenly it, it favored, you, you could see very clearly this thing that had been staring at our face for, for 10 years. But, you know, these things are always staring at our face. You know, you, you look at things like, booking.com and, and how it's been so incredibly successful and, and people talk about it as so revolutionary they talk about the iphone is so revolutionary i almost always want to laugh you know like there was a guy Jan Chipcase at noca he would go he would go around and take pictures of what people carry in their bags when people emptied their bags what you'd see is they had all this crap in there they had pda they had a blackberry they had a digital camera they had an mp3 player they had you know a big paper, you know, calendar. I mean, they had all this stuff. And so this idea that you could kind of consolidate this in one easy to use device we'll call an iPhone, I mean, in hindsight, it's like, whoa, that was pretty freaking obvious, you know? Or or you know, you know, like booking.com, like look at what making a trip reservation was like before a pl- an internet platform like booking.com. I mean, one of my um, one of my good friends his his acquaintance he's 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 you know, he hangs out with a guy who used to work for one of the big travel companies I won't name them but you know when he used to have all these agencies and, and his big career move had been to reduce the wait time in a travel agency from forty minutes to twenty minutes and then to scale that out across Europe and I was like whoa that's amazing like the wait time went down you know twenty minutes but it was still a crap experience you sat there for twenty minutes you walked up to an agent, they said, oh, you know, these are the last two flights to Paris. You know, they're kind of expensive, but, you know, you better take them. Otherwise, you might not get to Paris. And then you're like, make this you know, high-pressure decision. All booking.com did is say, that experience stinks. How do we make it so people can see their options, compare prices, and do it in a flexible way? And, and so in hindsight, you realize, oh, my gosh, it was there, you know? And, um, and technology suddenly makes easier to solve a, a customer need or, or you know in a way that wasn't solved before so in, in my ways in my view when i look at the pandemic i i see that there's really two kinds of change one is a kind of structural shift you probably couldn't have foreseen so naturally if you were in grocery stores you suddenly did better because it you know in, in places where people are confined they can't go out to eat or you know in healthcare you probably did better uh, or your zoom you did better um but then there were just outside of those kind of 
short-term shifts. There were companies that were well, that had already adopted these blue tools, these agile ways of working. So when the pandemic hit, they could reorient, self-organize, run quick experiments and discover where the new opportunities lie very, very quickly. And those companies have done exceptionally well. And you know, most just really quickly, and, and we could always splice this back in later if we want, but you did ask about the other two books, and, and, it, and it is a little bit tied to this, because I did want to say one quick word about leading transformation, innovation capital, how those books kind of fit in with the other, with the story. Whereas innovators' DNA was about how do we get ideas, and innovators' method was how do we test ideas. What I liked about leading transformation is it was it was more of an imaginative book. It was more to push people's thinking. And, and that was a book about how do we make, how do we kind of make long leaps? How do we maybe see into the future a little bit and get ourselves ready for that? And, um, and, and so it was all about using, taking behavioral science and trying to put that into some usable tools. So we talked about really crazy stuff like using science fiction writers to help you imagine what the future could be. And then telling a story that was like with characters, conflict and resolution, but telling it like maybe in a different format, like a comic book where we worked with uh, you know, the United Nations and their sustainable development goals and the entrepreneurs were pursuing those. We paired them with rappers and we had them rap about like the, what the entrepreneur was trying to do. And it was super powerful and moving and got people on board and motivated them. So it was like, how do you tell a story that motivates people? And how do you come overcome the obstacles to change? And what I think was interesting about that is the companies that apply these tools were much more well-prepared for the future than those who just kind of relied on, you know, what they saw at hand around them every day. And then, um, the, the most recent book uh, that came out was Innovation Capital. And that was trying to answer a related question, which was, well, how do you win support for your ideas? And uh, it really dawned on us what was staring us in the face when we had a conversation with Mark Benioff, who's the uh, founder and CEO, CEO of Salesforce.com, which has always been at the top of our list of uh, the world's most innovative companies. And here's the guy who created the company, right? And he tells us, you know, I've spent a lot of time building up my ability to change things, do new things. It's like political capital. I mean, we could call it innovation capital, but it's something I can spend to get things done. And what we realized is, you know, we've done all this work. How do you get ideas? How do you test ideas? How do you see what ideas might be valuable in the future? Oh my gosh, you also should invest as a person, an individual leader, and as a company in building your ability to win support for those ideas, your innovation capital. Yeah, in fact, I have uh, I actually have the book right in front of me right here. Uh, how to how to compete and win like the world's most innovative leaders. Um, so um, let's talk about you know, maybe delve into the innovation capital aspects, because obviously. In some respect, they're very obvious, right? Um, I think in, in some of the presentations um, that you've made to us, is you know Elon Musk comes up with you know the boring company and suddenly people are dropping billions of dollars towards him, uh, given the, his success he's had with obviously um, uh, you know SpaceX and and Tesla. Um, um, you know what are the sort of those and it's all intangible, right? Because you can't exactly say, well, you know uh, that this is what it is. I guess it's track record. There are many things 
the drive, um, the ability of someone to to you know to uh, to to get those resources for their ideas. Uh, maybe you can kind of delve into that a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, by the way, book titles are always a funny thing, right? <laughs> because it's always this like negotiation between an editor who wants to sell a lot of copies, but <laughs> something sound really sexy and what the thing actually is. And I think, you know, when I look back on leading transformation, I wish we could have called it like giant leap or long leap, yeah, yeah. imagining the future. And when I look on innovation capital, I wish the subtitle had been something more of like, how do you win support for your ideas yeah. and support from investors from customers from team members and employees and and it's kind of it's kind of obvious in hindsight but it's one of those things we we often miss and don't pay attention to particularly companies you know companies like you will be like oh we want to make a change and suddenly they, they announce the change and investor and, and investors punish them for it whereas like amazon can go and say we're we're doing floating warehouses and drones and like everything they do, investors kind of like pile more money on them. But it's because those, because Amazon is a company and, and Jeff Bezos as a CEO have built up their innovation capital. So people believe they can do it. And so it's this idea that, you know, we want to build over time that consciously invest in, 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 in our ability to help others, customers, team members, believe that we can do it. And it's a combination of both kind of building up your, your, your innovation capital, but also the things you do, the actions you can take. So in the book, we talk about three sources of innovation capital. One is human capital. The second is social capital. And the third is reputation capital. And, and you, you know, we talk about very specific elements of human capital. So for example, taking the time to try to imagine what the future can be. So, you know, to engage in, in, in future time travel. So Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, this is part of his rise from when he entered Microsoft as a no-namer to becoming CEO of one of the world's great tech companies and really transforming it for the better. Um, but he would talk about, I engage in mental time travel, and I thought, you know, the future is going to be about what we now call cloud computing. Now, everybody at Microsoft was shutting you know, it was, it was funneling into the kind of enterprise computing and, and you know, the, you know, an office and, and Microsoft operating systems and all the sexy parts of the business. Nobody wanted to be in the server business because that wasn't cool anymore. But, you know, Nadella's like, that's where the future's going to be. I'm going to make a name for myself. Um, and so there are these, you know, very specific actions to build your human capital. There's specific actions to build your social capital. We, we know it's important, but we forget that, like, if we want to be an innovator, we want to win support for ideas, We've got to be networking with people who are who are innovators, people who are investors, people who inside the company who can be champions for that and, and not wait for the day that we suddenly say, oh, I've got an idea, I want to do something and discover, you know, we don't know the right people. That's that's a long run game. And, and reputation capital is also about what you what you do. And it's little stuff like you, know, you forget, like one of my friends at Stanford studied how entrepreneurs raise money. Is it who you know or what you've done? And what we found is in the early days, the first three months, who you know has a huge impact. But that degrades like exponentially quickly. And pretty soon it becomes about what you've done. And if your startup has achieved some recognition, some award, done something, you know, that's the right time to raise money. And you know that afterwards, you're like, oh yeah, I knew that. 
but I wasn't really thinking about it. So it's those three sources of capital, human social reputation, but it's also this whole class of what we call impression amplifiers, which are things you can do to help people believe. And like a great example of this is, you know, we, we talk about Elon Musk and SpaceX, oh, it was so revolutionary. We forget there was another billionaire entrepreneur right before Elon Musk who also tried to create low-cost rockets and failed because he couldn't get NASA's attention. So it's not like that low-cost rockets was like brand new. Somebody had, in fact, SpaceX bought the old spaceport uh, of, of that company, owned by that company, uh, Beale Industries, Beale Aeronautics. And, um, but what made it different was Bezos, I mean, NASA governments writing Bezos off as this like Silicon Valley Brad who doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, the guy made PayPal, you know, what does that have to do with rockets? But one of the things he did to get people's attention is he drove a mock-up of the rocket, of the seven-story rocket, parked in front of the National Air and Space Museum during like a centennial celebration, invited everybody out, kind of told them, you know, here's what the future's going to be. And that is a technique we call materializing, which is if you can make it your idea material like a video, a model, a prototype, then people are more likely to believe. And it's those little tricks and actions that we want to take advantage of. And, and, and you're right. I mean, to be honest with you, all of these ideas were present in like the academic literature, but they just had never been tied together to this idea of, uh, of innovation capital. And, and, and I, all the time, Moza, I had people come to me and, and my co-authors and say, oh, man, like, you know, I, I just got laid off or I just, you know, had this big setback. I, I really wish I had paid more attention to what you were saying because I see how that would have helped me either keep my position or put myself, you know, even if you think about moving into better positions in your company. And, you know, we continue to do this research. And one of the things we've seen in, a, in, in our survey of over 16,000 executives and innovators is that being able to execute is kind of the bar for entry into the higher tiers of leadership. But after that, it's your ability to innovate that really sets you apart, to do new things while also executing. And so paying attention to that, your ability to win support for ideas is a big deal. Well, you've got to try, right? Absolutely. I have huge confidence. It's extremely clear to me that the world has become more dynamic, there's greater, pay, higher pace of change, uh, more, more new entrants, more competition than ever, and more opportunities than ever. And the companies that prosper will be the ones who can balance those red and blue ways of working, the execution and the innovation. So to, to take that into account, it just makes an incredible amount of success. Uh, sorry, to take that into account makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I mean, I can see it when I go into these companies. I remember going into uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals in New York um, and like hearing about how they thought about the experimentation process and saying, you know, we just looked at where the bottlenecks were, that slow down how fast you can experiment. And if we could break some of those bottlenecks, we could experiment faster than anybody else. And, you know, by that time, they had already been able to develop three FDA-approved drugs for less than 20% the cost of any other 
kind of big pharma company that had also developed three FDA-approved drugs. It's because they reinvented the process. But and you can see it if you talk to them, if you ask questions. Again, going back to that research, you, know, uh, you can see the behaviors that uh, are likely to lead to them generating more ideas. You can see the practices, the processes that uh, that that allow them to test and bring those ideas to market more quickly, like we saw on Amazon. And you see the philosophy, meaning the culture, the leadership, and the innovation capital that allows them to win the support to make those ideas real and to nurture them to maturity. So I'm a big believer in it. And uh, so I'm, I'm super happy to be involved. We're very happy to have you involved. Um, so um, maybe sort of... You know, moving on a little bit now and uh just maybe thinking about everything that you've learned and and i've, I've got a few questions that you know, certainly going through my mind as and i think you alluded to you know amazon is now like the world's biggest company or certainly in the top one or two uh companies um are they become like too big and um so powerful that that they actually now kind of stifle innovation so you know we're never going to get a new competitor to Google in search, for example, right? Um, because they're just so dominant uh, in that space and no one else is really going to, going to, you know, certainly can't see anyone who's going to come in, really attack that. Um, is there, have we, in, in some of these companies, have they just got too big and the danger is we're now moving to uh, an environment that, um, that uh, you know, we, we start to stifle that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated by this question of how do we create the most opportunity and possibility for everyone? And I think that, you know, success can become <clears throat> a weakness and can also become a liability. And, and without saying, you know, talking specifically about any one company, one of the things that surprises me is that I do feel like many of the big tech companies are the new oil barons, the new railroad barons, the new monopolies of the modern era. And many of them, partially it's because they're based on a platform and platforms are essentially kind of mediate markets, they mediate exchange. And in a digital world, they're extremely powerful and extremely hard to remove because the bigger they are, the greater the network effects. That is, you know, everybody joins the network, makes the network more valuable. The, the faster and more effective the learning cycles, the more powerful the data that they wield can be. And, and I think it's fair to say that we are living in a world where we are start, starting to see the downsides of that. So, you know, Facebook's kind of laissez-faire attitude to information is actually really dangerous to society because, you know, when you have an algorithm that is optimizing how much revenue you generate, what you find is you can, you can generate more revenue in the short term by delivering people polarized information that, ex, that kind of incites their emotions and their polarized views so that, you know, let's say I have one political persuasion. Let's take the U.S. as an example. I'm a Democrat, all I get is information about how horrible the Republicans are and vice versa. And and that like generates revenue for Facebook in the short term, but it's very uh, it's very 
disadvantageous and destructive to the functioning of societies in the long term. So my guess is that we are at a very appropriate stage where we're going to ask the question, what are the limits? Like where like all of industrial organization, organization economics was built around the question of how do we limit monopolies? Because monopolies essentially decrease customer surplus. They, they, they suck it up as profits to themselves. They control the market. And, and while it's really great if you're the monopoly and you're making tons of money, it's not good for consumers. So how do we break that up, create more competition, create more innovation? And, and by the way, Michael Porter of you know, strategy fame, his big move was to say, how do we take that industrial organization economics that was about destroying monopolies, flip it on its head and give companies instructions about how to make monopolies. But, but I do think, you know, there are people out there who I think have some reasonable voices about there are dangers when things get too centralized, they get too big, they get too powerful. And that one of the things you need to do to foster the long-term benefit of consumers and society is to say, what's the right point where we encourage innovation, where we encourage diversity, where we kind of break it and say like, that's too big. You know, there's too much power there. And, and <clears throat> in my personal opinion, which people can disagree with, we're well past that point as illustrated by the way that Facebook has been able to you know, really sway, uh, potentially sway uh, political elections and um, by you know, just kind of the power. And you know, luckily, you know, some of these big platforms have at their heart some ethics about, you know, you know, Google in the early days was, you know, don't be evil. And I think that still has still spreads there but it's but these are big questions that we need to answer and, and particularly europe i mean i sat in closed door forum with a group of top european ceos i mean names you would recognize asking the question why are there no big european platforms and it's and it's a tough question because you know china has you know again there are benefits to size and, and data and china is kind of taking the no holds barred approach of you know centralizing around companies like you know Tencent and Alibaba, but these introduce big ethical questions as well, right? Because those companies have government security offices inside of those in those companies, and, and you could argue, are they tools of the state as much as tools of commerce? And where do we want to draw these lines? These are the kinds of debates that form the foundation of thoughtful societies that have always formed the foundation, at least since the Enlightenment, the debate and discourse about individual rights versus the community about the boundaries of, 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 of economy. And so I think we should have more of a debate, you know, so while I'm a big fan of, of innovation and, and I love, you know, everything Amazon's been able to accomplish, we should be talking about what's the optimal point where we get the most innovation and the most benefit for all of us. Yeah. Well, it's certainly going to be a big debate, uh around this topic over the next uh over the next few years i'm i'm that i'm absolutely certain about uh we've already started to see you know blowbacks with with alibaba even you know um with uh the ant financial ipo and kind of pulling that back by by the chinese authorities uh we've seen i guess TikTok in in the in the us and kind of what's going on there you know um this is certainly going to be a very very interesting and a very hot topic i think over the coming years i i i'm sure we have no doubt about that it, it was very interesting at the comment you just made which uh which 
you know, reminded me is that, you know, the US or, or say the American companies like Google and Facebook did turn up in China a few years back and then were kind of royally kicked out, possibly answering um, uh, the question that you that you posed is maybe Europe should should have done the same. Yeah, it's certainly kind of brings that up that um, the challenge took a really sort of hard action on this. And likewise, I, now, I guess now that, uh, that uh, TikTok has become you know, so, uh, so, so powerful, so strong in, in such a short space of time that the, um, uh, the American government and uh, the, certainly the Trump government has taken the other view <laughs> that maybe we don't really want a, a Chinese company dominating uh, the US uh, you know, social, social media scene as a as a chinese company so this you know i think um it's it's absolutely fascinating and maybe uh we could probably did uh devote a two or three podcasts just on that topic itself uh which is you know is absolutely fascinating so um nathan so um uh, some of the recent work you've done has been around uh, resiliency um, I'm looking forward to a discussion that we're going to have in, in January because this is, if you like, your latest piece of work of of uh, resiliency. I, I think it's it's rather kind of ironic at our um, investment uh, offsite in January. You presented uh, the the notion of resiliency and personal resiliency, and uh, lo and behold, <laughs> literally a month and a half later, we were dealing with personal resiliency of the the highest order and highest magnitude. But um, um, tell us, you know, a little bit of um, of the work you're doing, and obviously, we will uh, we'll delve more of that in, in our January seventh uh, offsite. But um, um, you know, t- tell us a little bit about uh, the work you're doing at the moment. So uh, along the journey of interviewing all these different innovators and entrepreneurs, one thing I noticed quite some time ago is that they were uncommonly good at navigating the uncertainty that accompanies doing something new, you know, and and that was really quite curious to me because I grew up, I would say pretty risk averse, uh, you know, fairly conservative. And then over the course of my life, learned to take big risks, you know, leaving careers, leaving countries, uh, leaving all kinds of things and, and seeing how much good came out of taking risk and, and seizing uncertainty and, and sometimes failing and falling flat and, and learning from that as well. And what I noticed from inter- interviewing these innovators, is they're really good at that. So I began curious about, okay, so how do they develop this ability to face uncertainty? What are the tools and techniques they use? And so for several years, I was interviewing innovators. And every time I'd ask them a few questions about this, and I was really starting to pull this together when the pandemic hit. And it showed a whole new side of it to me, which was, you know, before I'd been really focused on this idea of how do you deal with that uncertainty of doing something new? I'm starting a new company. I'm launching a new venture. I'm, you know, starting a new job or something like that. And what the pandemic was all about was what we could call unplanned uncertainty in contrast to that more planned certainty. And once, what do you do when something hits you sideways and it completely changes your world? And I remember I was working on this and, and my wife said to me, you know, if, if this stuff doesn't help you, you better not write this book because uh, now's, now's the proof, uh, proof point. And, and, and so in some ways, although I, you know, absolutely have incredible sadness for all the loss that it's created for everybody in all these different ways, 
for me personally, it became this huge reflection point of applying these tools and techniques I've been learning about, refining them, both to deal with planned and unplanned uncertainty. And so what the work is really about is what are the tools to face uncertainty? Because what we forget about uncertainty, right? because it scares us, it makes us anxious. We forget that uncertainty really comes from change, but change also creates possibilities. Even negative changes like the pandemic also reveal new possibilities. And, and, and we can see that as much as there's been loss, there's been new business models, new ways of interacting with customers, new ways of teaching, new, new ways of thinking about your life that have come about because of this change. And so really the book I'm working on, the working title right now is Uncertainty Possibility. Sometimes I call it Uncertainty Capability. It's how do you develop this ability to take uncertainty and turn it into possibility. And in it, we describe what we call the red cross uh, of, for uncertainty, like the red cross is the first aid to deal with uncertainty. How do you kind of reframe the situation? How do you prepare for it? How do you take action? And how do you sustain yourself when you're in it? And um, so in some ways, the pandemic is, is fortuitous because it highlights how much we need it. On the other hand, it is a little bit of with a grain of bitterness because it was never meant to be like a pandemic book. It was meant to be a book for people over their careers and a lifetime because in a world of rising uncertainty, man, I feel like I was not taught the tools to deal with that. I was taught so many other things in school, but never how to deal with uncertainty. And yet that's one of the most critical things we need to avoid these traps that we fall into and instead turn that uncertainty into new opportunities. So that's the focus. Uh, and actually we've got a website up, Uncertainty Possibilities, uh, excuse me, Uncertainty Possibility or Uncertainty Capability uh, that, you know, that we're kind of, out, it's an alpha mode. And so if anybody's curious, you know, show up there and, and, and check it out. But, uh, you know, this one, this book is a little different for me too. I'll say it's a very personal book because I believe deeply in how much it can help people. And so I'm really mostly interested in, in letting it help other people. And, and that's both people like you and me who, let's be honest, we have a lot of opportunity and a lot of privilege already. It's about helping people who maybe feel a little more stuck. And it's about thinking through how we make opportunities for other people as well. You know, I, we started this conversation talking about where I grew up. I grew up on the West Coast, and I actually grew up in the state of Oregon. And I remember as a kid working in the fields behind, beside these uh, immigrant workers who had come from Mexico. And the local community called them bad names, and they're the kind of people that the Trump presidency called bad hombres. But you know what I observed? I observed these people worked harder than anybody I knew for families they loved. And at there's, there is structural inequality that we could do more about. So it's a book about how do we make more possibilities for ourselves and also always remember, how do we make more possibilities for the people around us? Because, I mean, that's like a good life, right? Is to have possibilities and to give those to others. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, it's a, a very, very well said um, that, uh, you know, I think certainly – giving other people the possibility or certainly open their eyes to what's out there uh, uh, is is kind of key especially in this in in the time we're in at the moment so 
absolutely worthy cause. I will certainly go to the website myself and uh, and uh, and check it out. And is there a place to leave comments? I will certainly do that too. <laughs> yeah, there's a place to leave comments, and actually, fun enough, we're going to run a a beta workshop for folks. So, so it's like super cheap. You can learn about all the tools and techniques. You get you basically get the workshop for the price of the book when it comes out. So. Yeah, uncertaintypossibility.com, uncertaintycapability.com. Yeah, so <clears throat> look me up and, and you can you can you know leave a comment, give us your name. We're not gonna spam you, we're only gonna send you really valuable stuff. Excellent. We will certainly do that. Um well we're looking certainly looking forward to uh to, to you coming um again to to take us through that and uh, uh hopefully uh we will as ever with you, Nathan, uh, uh, much, much smarter after spending time with you than before. So, uh, so thank you very much for that. Uh, so I think that uh, wraps us up for, uh, for today, Nathan. Um, uh, again, thank you very much uh, for working with us. Uh, thank you very much for guiding us, certainly um, you know, over the years and certainly through this period. Uh, it has certainly helped us navigate better um, and certainly in this really sort of dark time uh, to keep us optimistic, which is also, uh, I think, a, a very important trait if you're going to deal with uncertainty. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, it's an honor to be on your podcast and to be involved with EFG. It's a lot of fun for me. And, you know, unless you have a way to talk about your ideas, they, they can't help anybody. So I'm always grateful to uh, to you and to the rest of the team for giving me that opportunity. So thank you, Melissa. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. And, um, you know, um, have a very restful uh, Christmas uh, period and holiday period. And uh, we will look forward with uh, and look forward to vaccines and 2021. <laughs> have a great holiday, uh, Moz. Take the time off and uh, get some at rest to rejuvenate yourself. Excellent. We'll certainly do that, uh, Nathan. Take care and look after yourself. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was a, an absolutely fascinating discussion um, with, with Nathan, as it always, always is with Nathan. Uh, so um, we are obviously very excited to have Nathan talk to us about um, uh, resiliency and uh, at our January 7th um, uh, offsite or actually uh, it's going to be a, a webinar this year um, rather than offsite and uh, we'll be uh, tackling some of those resiliency issues with Nathan so we're looking forward to that uh, so with that thank you very much and we'll speak to you next week.